Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. No housekeeping today, apart from reminding you that I have released a new podcast series with Ricky Gervais. That can be found over at absolutelymental.com. And uh, people really seem to like it. And it was a lot of fun to make, so enjoy. Okay. Today I'm speaking with Jesse Single. Jesse's the former editor of uh, New York Magazine's The Science of Us. He has written for The New York Times, The Atlantic, Slate, The Boston Globe, The Daily Beast, and other outlets. And he has his own podcast with Katie Herzog, Blocked and Reported, which I recommend. And he has a new book, The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. Uh, We really don't discuss the book much in this podcast, electing instead to touch a wide variety of controversial issues, from racial inequality to trans activism to the conflict in the Middle East. We really make a fair amount of trouble for ourselves. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Now I bring you Jesse Single. I am here with Jesse Single. Jesse, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on, Sam. I will have properly introduced you, but to remind people, you've got a a new book, The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills, and you have a a very enjoyable podcast, Blocked and Reported, which you do with Katie Herzog, and you have a Substack newsletter, which is also a great read. So I guess there are many intersecting things here I want to speak about with you. I I think one thing we should cover is is something that I think you and I both typify at the moment, which is the the fragmentation of media and how this relates to all of our other cultural problems. Uh, Maybe that's the lens through which we could focus this conversation. But before we jump in, perhaps you can give a uh, a potted history of how you got here. How do you think of yourself as a journalist and what has been your career prior to the um, properties and platforms I just mentioned? Yeah. So in my 20s, I was sort of just a, mostly a liberal opinion writer. And by you know mid to late 20s, I became more interested, uh, not just in arguing that people were wrong, but, but trying to understand the roots of disagreement. And uh, John Haidt was a big influence uh, on me on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, Ended up getting a uh, public policy master's in a, in a program with like a pretty heavy psychology component, you know, for a public policy program. But yeah, and I was I was sitting in a coffee shop on a fellowship in Berlin trying to figure out what the hell to do when I got back to the states, and I saw New York Magazine was launching a whole uh, behavioral science vertical. So I was the first editor of of what was called Science of Us, and that sort of brought me more into you know, that stuff, just just writing and editing stories about human behavior every day. And along the way, I learned that uh, a massive amount of, of social psychology is probably complete bunk, which was disappointing. But the uh, the bright side is it it, it provided good fodder for uh, a book. And um, yeah, I'm condensing a lot of stuff. But I also, I uh, became slightly controversial among some people along the way, which I, I think probably helped me gain a platform on Substack and Patreon. So um, now, like an increasing number of journalists, most of my income comes just from direct subscribers, which if you told me that would happen, you know, three years ago, I would have said, 
that probably means there was some sort of catastrophe and, and I had to go that way, but it's just turned out that's the better approach for a lot of people. Yeah, let, let's start with the fragmentation of the media, I think, because individually, it's clearly the right choice. And as we get into some of the controversies here, I think we'll, it'll become explicit why it is the right choice for, for you. It is certainly the right choice for me. But ultimately, I, I, it's a choice that I'm still worried about. It's a choice that doesn't really scale. It's a, I mean, we just cannot devolve into a wilderness of competing Substack newsletters and podcasts. Right. I mean, we need institutions. We need a New York Times and and a uh, you know other media properties that function by intellectual standards and journalistic standards that we can all rely on and defend. And so, this flight to the suburbs of media is troubling, even when we're really succeeding at it. Right. And it also has a kind of winner-take-all dynamics to it, which is worrisome. Now, it seems to me there there are many points of contact between the kinds of things that are so difficult to talk about that are that are forcing this fragmentation of media and some of what you discuss in your book. I mean, your book kind of rolls over social psychology in a in a fairly um, devastating way, and you you, see, you you take on the the self esteem industry and and grit and you know the implicit association test, you know the the body which purports to reveal. Uh, unconscious bias, and there are many other other um, exports from social psychology of late that don't withstand all that scrutiny. And some of them are, are directly related to some of the problems with with wokeism and cancel culture that we'll talk about. I guess uh, as a just a a first step into in this direction, what is it that you are most concerned about now with respect to the, the state of media and the career of a journalist and the, you know, the, the, the bad incentives that, that are making, um, that seem to be re- reliably pushing us in the direction of being less and less competent to talk about socially polarizing issues. Yeah, I think there, there's two issues here that, that sort of overlap but are, are useful to separate out. One is just the general collapse of funding models for for media and for newspapers in particular. So, you know, we're in this conversation, we have shared interests. We're probably not going to talk a lot about this, but we should keep in mind that America as a country has an interest in us knowing what's going on in the uh, Baltimore City Council or, or the Nashua courts, all these areas of life where unless there is a local newspaper that is well-funded, they will just not be covered and there'll be no incentive for you know, people to not be corrupt, basically, that that's just gone. So the, the bigger story here that sometimes gets obscured, and, and I've, I'm sure I've helped to obscure it because I have my own interests, is just a steamroller devastating the American media ecosystem. So that's one thing. Then, then there's what's going on at the elite outlets at the New York Times or the Atlantic or, or the Voxosphere. And, and there, I think in part because when your livelihood feels more precarious and like it's it's collapsing. Uh, and then you have Trump. I think all of this has combined to create a mainstream media ecosystem that, as you said, is having a harder and harder time talking seriously about complicated issues. And I think, I think it's leading to a lot of groupthink and a lot of work that ranges, you know, some of it's just unreadable, but fundamentally harmless. It's just bad 
X-Men analysis or whatever. And then there's, there's stuff that I think causes some harm because it, it's actively misleading on important policy issues. Yeah, well, it it relates, and I guess this is the, a direct point of contact with your book, it relates to concerns about inequality and meritocracy at this point. And, uh, you know, much of the the stuff in the, in social psychology that hasn't held up very well relates to this notion that inequality can be fixed in in ways that are um, that it would, it would be wonderful if true, but like you're boosting people's self esteem yeah. or understanding and improving grit, uh, and whether or not that's just a synonym for conscientiousness is a is another matter. But you know whether or not that's the case, whether improving those things, if you could improve them, is re- would really fundamentally address the inequality that is becoming a greater concern and, and more and more difficult to speak about insofar as it interacts with variables like race. And maybe we should get your own misadventures with cancel culture out of the way before we, we jump in. <laughs> yeah. So you, you have you come trailing a fair amount of cancellation-related debris in your orbit. What What has been your experience here? Yeah, we should say attempted cancellation because yep. I I think some people rightly point out like you know screw you you're not canceled you you make a good living doing this which is true but um most of it stems from a 2018 cover story I wrote for the Atlantic about trans youth and about the question of what you should do when a, a 12 or 13 year old wants to go on uh, puberty blockers which which pause puberty or cross sex hormones which, you know, if you're a natal male and you go on estrogen, you'll develop some female secondary sex characteristics, and that is generally not reversible. Hmm. It's a 13,000-word article. It goes to great lengths to explain why transition is important for people with gender dysphoria, because it is. Uh, The science on that isn't great, because this is a difficult thing to study, but I, I think it's fairly solid. But it points out that for kids, there are reasons to maybe be a little bit more cautious and to ask more questions. It's not an anti-transition piece. It's not a pro-conversion therapy piece, but it it sort of launched a firestorm that's continued to this day. And it's it sort of occupies so much real estate in the minds of, of a group of people where like whenever, when Donald Trump did something bad in anti-trans, or more recently, these states trying to pass these laws banning... Um, transgender healthcare for minors, which I'm very much against. This is, everything just traces back to my article. My article is sort of the cause of all transphobia mm. in the States. And I, I just think that's a result of people spending too much time online. But it's, um, it's been a weird experience because if you told me, you know, 15 years ago, I, I'd be added to like uh, a glad their enemy list of supposedly transphobic thinkers, that stuff like that would happen to me. I, I would not have believed you. It's been strange, but at the end of the day, I stand by the article and no one has pointed out any, uh, factual flaws in it. In the interest of uh, not creating more hassle for you, it was uh, grammatically ambiguous as to whether or not you, you were saying you were against the, the laws against transgender health care or you were against transgender health care for minors. Yeah, these laws are attempting to ban puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for minors. I'm very much against those laws. Mm-hmm. I think there are serious gaps in the research that I'd be happy to talk about, but Saying there's gaps in the research is not the same as saying I trust the Tennessee legislature right. to weigh these issues in a way that would take the right out of parents' hands or doctors' hands to weigh that issue in a different way. I think I think they're terrible laws, and I, I've tried to be outspoken in my opposition to them. Mm. So, was there anything 
truly controversial or that, that, you, that you understand to be why it would be controversial that you put forward in that piece? Or is this really a, um, a case where the, 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 there's just a fairly um, concerted effort to demolish you with bad faith misconstruals of what you actually said? A lot of it was was bad faith. It in some case just sort of making up things about the content of the piece. The the genuinely, to me, the fair points are there's two of them. One is why focus on detransition? People have argued I basically I talked to some people who transitioned, regretted it, and then said that they felt they were sort of led too quickly down the road of taking hormones or getting surgery by by what they saw as incompetent therapists and healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. You could you could make a, a good faith case, like, you know, why focus on that? People often say detransition is rare. We don't know that it's rare in an American context, because in the American context, there's basically no binding guidelines for things like mental health assessment and, and how long, you know, before you get surgery, stuff like that. So that's fair. The other the other fair critique is I presented sympathetically the idea that some teenagers who have other mental health care problems going on might, you know, become convinced through peer influence that really their issues come down to the fact that they're trans and they haven't transitioned yet. I didn't sort of say as myself, I think this is happening, but I but I presented parents and cases of kids where where it does appear to have happened. So So the the, the thesis there is that there's a social contagion component to this the trans phenomenon, which if true, would be something that many people would be concerned about. Yeah. And and so one thing no one disagrees about is that the number of kids being referred to youth gender centers around the world has skyrocketed. And the question is whether that's just people being uh, the reduction of stigma. More people mm-hmm. are, feel like they can go to their parents and say, I think I'm trans. Can we go to a gender clinic? Surely that is part of it. The question is whether in some cases it's kids who are, you know, a little bit going through a phase or slightly confused. And I having sat and talked to kids who that has happened to, I find it impossible to believe that the number of cases of that is zero or close to mm-hmm. zero. Now, does that, how much of the increase does that account for? We, we have no idea. Anyone who claims to know how much of the account, the increase is X versus Y, I think is lying or is overconfident. We don't know. But I just, there are very compelling anecdotal accounts of kids doing what kids do, which is becoming convinced of something at age 12 that they'll look back on at age 20 and be like, huh, that's interesting. I thought that. Yeah. And, and I think the, the larger problem here is that the conversation around this issue is not a dispassionate, intellectually honest, compassionate approach to getting to something like ground truth here. It is a, a picture of kind of scorched earth activism on the one side and uh, a range of uh, well-intentioned and blockheaded approaches to resisting the activism on the other side, right? I would certainly put you in the well-intentioned camp, but then you've got everything that's happening in Trumpistan going on over your shoulder from the point of view of, of the left. And right. it's just very difficult to sort out, but it, it culminates in just culturally bizarre products. Like, I don't know if you recently saw this on, on uh, Twitter, but Sarah Silverman, the comic who I absolutely love, who's brilliant in so many ways, but it, she she on this topic, I mean, she's clearly drunk the the woke Kool-Aid here, and she uh, just attacked Caitlyn Jenner, of all people, as a as a transphobe. Did you see this? 
<laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're calling Caitlyn Jenner transphobic, at some point you need to check your your math along the way and and wonder what has <laughs> what cul-de-sac you have argued yourself into. Well, but I, I mean, I could do you one better than that because something like that you can understand why because she's just trying to stay. She's been criticized in the past for for offensive humor, but like CNN in a news article, not an opinion article, a news article recently said there's quote no consensus method for assigning sex at birth with a newborn. <laughs> like, no, uh, does it, does it help trans people to say that? Does anyone think that's true or that it helps anybody to think, does anyone, sex just, is a total mystery very, at birth. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and this is the kind of thing where I, I, people often jump to the Soviet comparison or the cultural revolution comparison. I obviously don't think we're there. I do think it's completely bizarre that we're at a place where CNN in a news article, would would try to tell its readers, we just don't know what sex babies are. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, so this is an issue that I basically have not touched. I mean, this is you know what we've just said. <laughs> Apologies in advance, Sam. Now is as much as I've ever said about it. I guess I should probably put out a few fires before they start. But I just think that there's no question, gender dysphoria is a real phenomenon that isn't merely a product of cultural contagion or or propaganda right i mean there are, you know I, I know someone who at the age of 4 at least this you know was just obviously identifying as the the opposite gender and alleging any brainwashing from the parents or the culture just doesn't make any sense when you get close to this case and clearly there needs to be some path for her to uh, live as happy a life as possible. And, you know, whether that requires transitioning through hormones and surgery at some point, you know, that that's for the parents and the child to figure out. And and only a um, someone who's who's really just not sensitive to the the difference between happiness and suffering here could doubt that we would want some process to make that as orderly and as sensible and as compassionate as possible. I mean, you, and you, you want it to terminate whatever someone winds up doing in this space. You want a political environment where there's just no question that there's political equality, whatever one's self-identified gender. But around cases like that, there's an activist culture that is just not at all committed to having a sane conversation about this and the trade-offs between women's interests and trans interests and the interests of the gay community and trans interests now are increasingly zero-sum in ways that are pretty weird. And, uh, you know, the J.K. Rowling affair is, was a, a flashpoint around this. I think the, the argument here is that we want to be able to talk about this, but it does seem like the controversy here is completely out of proportion to the numbers of people who are actually implicated in this issue. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the even with a an explosion in gender identity uncertainty in the culture for you know whatever its origin, whether it's just you know exposing the the level that was always there, or there's some component of social contagion. It's still a it has to be a sub one percent of the population phenomenon, and yet. It has a presence online in particular that, I mean, you would think it's as big as wealth inequality or racial inequality in our society. Do you regret touching this topic at all? 
I do sometimes. It, it's just, it's sort of, I, when this gets, it's craziest, it gets very crazy. And, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a, trying to report from Syria. I don't feel my life is at risk. But, but you know, they, they, there's a subset of people who really try to inflict as much reputational damage as possible. And it's not, it's not fun to go through. That said, I, I'm confident in my work and I'm confident in the Atlantic's editing and fact checking. And I, I would still point people to this article as a good way to, to understand this issue. And it includes the voices of happily transitioned young people. So I, I can't really say I regret it. I also, on net, I've benefited from the controversy because controversy attracts eyeballs. And then people see hmm. the art, read the article itself and are baffled as to what's controversial about it. I, on the question of, of why the issue is so big, like, I, I do think it's complicated. Like, there's, there's a subset of people who, from a very young age, are deeply dysphoric. And, you know, when I first started learning about this issue, the idea of forcing people to live as men or as males when this is just going to bring them tremendous misery and when in 99% of cases this won't hurt anyone else for them to transition, I, I find there is a genuine level of cruelty there or, or a level of maybe like rigidity of thinking where at a certain point it really is, it, there should be a little bit of who cares mm. to this discussion. Who cares if people transition if they're not hurting others? And then there's that 1% or 5% or 10% of the issue when you're talking about kids and diagnostic procedures or when you're talking about sports or sort of non-everyday but still important uh, issues like prison, stuff like that, where we need to be able to have a sane conversation or, or there's just going to be endless culture warring and backlash. But there's absolutely a subset of people who I do not think will be able to live authentic, happy lives unless they're allowed to transition. The percentages are tricky because it, a lot of, of, of social science institutions and media outlets have sort of taken cues from from activists who are trying to lump together very different cases. So so basically the definition of someone who's transgender at this point is someone who identifies as transgender. And that ranges from people who don't have any dysphoria, who will never need medical health care, to people who are deeply dysphoric. So that sub 1% figure I think is actually not true. I mean some polling shows much higher numbers especially among young people. That's but that's because no one's ever bothered to really define gender as it's used today in a coherent way. Gender seems to mean a million different mm. things. So when we talk about a gender revolution, which is language you often hear, sometimes that really is just, you know, 14-year-olds saying, I painted my nails, so I'm non-binary, which is fine and doesn't hurt anyone, but that's not the same as having dysphoria and needing medical help. What would you put the percentage at? Well, I mean, there's a, the UCLA's Williams Institute, I, I think, puts it at around 1%, but I do think especially in the rise of people, kids especially, identifying as non-binary, mm. any chunk of the younger population, it, it, it's probably significantly higher than that. And it doesn't matter. This is not a threat to anyone. The only cases I'm concerned about are when you medical interventions are on the table. Right. Yeah, it's difficult and, and, and no one should envy anyone, parent or child, going through it. But uh, the style of conversation on this issue and on, on so many others at the moment is so poisonous and so yep. explicitly aimed at defenestrating people. And the people who, who survive the, the mobbing are either very lucky or um, they've, they've, they've been previously insulated from the consequences of this. I mean, someone like J.K. Rowling is, is probably the best example because in her case, I think it's it's pretty obvious that had she not been J.K. Rowling, she would have been canceled. 
I mean, her oh, book yeah. would yeah. have been too much money is on the line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's she is a you know literally a billion dollar colossus in the publishing industry, opening theme parks based on her novels. It's impossible to cancel her, but it seems that even there they got fairly close. Given, I mean, when when you know the Hollywood actors whose careers were entirely defined by her intellectual property come out and disavow her. That's a big deal, especially given how anodyne the things were that she said on this issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, it gets complicated because they're they're expressing their opinions. They have every right to. I in the Rowling case, I she was mostly responding to the idea of of reforming the Gender Recognition Act in the UK so that self ID is basically the law of the land, meaning you you can transition your sex without much of a process. You just sort of announce bureaucratically you sign something and you say i'm i'm now a man i'm now a woman it's just been weird watching watching the conversation over that unfold i genuinely don't have a strong opinion on it i haven't looked deeply enough into it but but you would think that like we should at least be able to talk about a proposed change to the law but any opposition to that or even questions about it is treated as as though you want trans people to die and and i'm only i'm not really exaggerating there and that's just not, I don't know, watching mainstream media outlets go along with that and, and pretend that there couldn't possibly be any trade-offs here to the point where the, the Guardian wrote an uh, unsigned editorial simply stating there might be some trade-offs here. And the U.S. Guardian, several staffers there, wrote a scathing rebuttal about how transphobic their colleagues across the pond were. It's just, you sort of, you, you need to have an actual conversation about a policy issue. And that means that those of us participating in it we need a, we run the risk. Maybe 20 years ago, 20 years from now, we'll be history's monsters. But to not have that discussion at all, to skip right ahead to this is the right policy and anyone who questions it should be destroyed, just, just isn't a sane way to do business. Hmm. I wasn't even thinking of that aspect of the conversation. It was more, I mean, when I saw things kick off against Rowling, it was just on her obvious concern about the the degradation of the English language, right? She was pushing back against some I forget who it was, but someone was not using the word woman in the context of talking about people who menstruate, right? They didn't want to use woman because that would be would be denigrating to all of the trans women who don't menstruate. So they they referred to you know menstruators or people who menstruate. And and J.K. Rowling got on Twitter saying in a somewhat snide way, "Well, surely there's a there's a a word for someone who menstruates," and uh, then reaped the whirlwind on the basis of that. Yeah, I you know, I think there's an extent to which not just among trans activists but activists in general there's been this weird tumblerization or twitterization of everything where the specific fights we have aren't always the most productive ones if your goal is to convince people who aren't yet convinced. I mean, imagine the difference if you're new to trans activism between hearing an interview with someone who is who is just going to be miserable unless they have access to transition services. And there are a lot of people like that mm. versus versus the, your first encounter with it being, you can't say pregnant women anymore. They're pregnant people or they're menstruators. Uh, there, there seems to be here and elsewhere little, um, people aren't really attending to the idea that maybe they should try to couch their political claims in language the as yet unconverted uh, would be sympathetic to. So now how do you pick your battles at this point? Because you don't shy away from controversy, even though you, you are um, battle-scarred on this topic. What, what do you, are, there, are there things that you decline to touch now because of this 
experience, or do you just keep uh, forging ahead toward any culture war issue that interests you? I mean, so one of the benefits of having a Substack is when I do write about these issues, it's it's often behind a paywall, and there's downsides to that because, you know, you'd like to contribute to the public discourse, but especially given that my views aren't that that radical, I mean, I it it is you can avoid the Twitter shitstorm, which is nice. I. I do think people who write about cultural issues, there is this risk that you get pulled into this black hole where your entire intellectual identity becomes centered on like fighting the SJWs or whatever, mm. or or fighting the worst college professors. And I'm I'm worried about that because there is some incentive to do that. Like if I wanted to maximize my Substack revenue, I would just do culture war shit all the time. But I, there really there are more important things in the world. So. I, I haven't figured out how to how to strike the right balance, but I'm I'm trying to. Yeah, that that is a a real liability of touching these topics. It's this phenomenon that I've discussed at a few points, which goes by the name, at least in my brain, of audience capture, where you if you yes train your audience or you acquire an audience that uh, wants to hear from you on on this hottest of topics. Yeah, you you can kind of self-incentivize to keep doing it. And I've certainly done my best to avoid that. I mean, really not because, I mean, the, the main reason for me is just, is just that it's it's too boring, right? I mean, it's just, yeah, it's yeah. just deadly. There's, there's not that much to think about here once you have a modicum of intellectual honesty and, and goodwill in hand. It's just not, it's, it, this is not, it's not rocket science to... See what's wrong with with essentially lying and seizing upon confirmation bias as though it were some kind of virtue, and then trying to uh, destroy people who won't play that game. I mean, so criticizing that whole tangle of bad form in argumentation again and again and again is just it gets deadly boring. But and there are people who do it, and they become single issue people. To a point where, yeah, then they then they allow themselves to make alliances that are obviously ethically or intellectually questionable or both, right? I mean, I don't know that we need to name names here, but there are people who you know, I think I agree with ninety five percent on the topic of what's wrong with wokeism or you know cancel culture or identity politics, but the five percent of daylight between us opens on to the full horror show of Trumpistan and QAnon and just absolute madness that these people refuse to criticize because those cultural forces are pointing in the same direction against the wokeness on the left. And so, you know, it's yeah. just this principle, you know, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, which really is just, it's just a bad heuristic. That was like a big moment for me as like a warning sign of what can happen if you're not intellectually careful and, and don't have some humidi humility. Watching all these sort of anti-woke people either announce they were voting for Trump or, or claiming there wasn't really a big and meaningful difference between Trump and Biden to claim to speak for liberalism, classical or otherwise, and then not be outraged by Trump. It just it all becomes tribalism, and in many cases they take on the characteristics of their enemies. You'll you'll see them talk about wokeism in the same way the least thoughtful thinkers on the left talk about white supremacy as this like mystical force that just infects everything and can't really be explained in 
normal terrestrial language, and, and you end up sounding like a cult member at the end of the day, not, not someone capable of intellectual engagement and, and weighing trade-offs. I just, yeah, I, I, I can't stand that at all. I also, um, there's a really good book by Todd Gitlin called The Twilight of Common Dreams. He wrote it in 1995 as just mm. as a lefty attempt to make sense of the culture wars. And, you know, he's outraged by the 1995 equivalent of wokeness. He's also outraged at conservative attempts to sort of um, uh, piggyback off it in bad faith. And it's such a depressing book to read because there are almost, other than social media, there are no differences between the fights that were going on then and the fights that are going on. It's just, it's all the same shit with slightly different language. And it's just like, how many decades of your life do you want to spend doing the culture war thing when, when there's not, I'm not sure it's going to be any different 30 years from now. But something has changed. I mean, this may be a difference of view between us in terms of how dire the current moment is. Because, I mean, in 1995, there hadn't been, unless I just slept through it or I was too young to care or something, it does not seem that there had been the same kind of institutional capture by what certainly to my eye seems like a public hysteria. And the difference, I mean, the, the reason why it, it makes sense to worry more about the far left and uh, I guess we just can, can keep calling it wokeness uh, to capture the whole phenomenon. The reason why it makes sense to be w more worried about wokeness than by, you know, white supremacy, say, is because genuine white supremacy is a true fringe phenomenon on the right. The people who show up with tiki torches are obviously retrograde assholes, and they don't, I mean, apart from the fact that you know, Trump gave them some comfort with his ambiguities, we're not talking about real cultural power for the fringe on the right, whereas the fringe on the left really does seem to have captured academia and media and tech and Hollywood, not every inch of it, perhaps. And obviously, there's a ton of preference falsification. I mean, there are many, many people who are just keeping yeah. mum or paying lip service to an ideology that they don't actually share, and they're waiting for everyone to wake up so that it'll be safe to be honest again. But it still has been captured to an amazing degree. So in terms of cultural influence and the stifling of honest conversation that's happening in, in mainstream, really in every mainstream quadrant of culture, that is a leftist phenomenon. So I, I agree that that's a difference between then and now. I guess part of me, I think the preference falsification thing is huge, just based on the emails I get from, from professors and journalists who think their own department or newsroom has gone crazy. If there is capture, I'm not sure how sustainable it is because so many people are are quietly freaking out about, you know, what the Trump years have done to their institutions. And there seems to be a steady stream of 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 stories that leak and that outrage every it's just it's a very whatever it is. And I, I agree, wokeness is I don't know if that's the best word, but you could fight all day over what to call it. It is not a popular ideology. It really isn't. I mean, whatever polling you look at. But the people who believe in it, you know, they're people from backgrounds like mine. They're, they're, they're well-educated. They're in media. I just, I'm not sure you can sort of foist it on, on people for that long without there being backlash. And I think that does partly explain, you know, the Substack thing and the success of, of, of our podcast and others. So 
I guess I just what I don't want is like total balkanization where where these outlets keep going down that road and to get the other view but still left of center view, your only choice is is Substack or certain podcasts. Yeah. That I think is totally unsustainable, but what to do about it is the question. I mean, I was recently at a um, a meeting of very connected people in tech and media, and uh, like I say I won't name anyone, but I mean these are people who are are running or were running some of the biggest companies. These are people with massive influence, and these were people who were you know on the same page with everything we've said here. But when it, when told that. Um, they really should just present a united front here and not tolerate these mutinies of their their woke employees. So the example I gave in this meeting was, you know, what happened to Nicholas Christakis at Yale. So my, my yeah. premise was, at some point, and I think we're at that point, there is no substitute for institutional courage, right? I mean, you can have the courage of individuals, but at a certain point, the institutions themselves have to say, okay, no more. This party of masochism and delusion is over. So when you look at what happened at Yale, when you watch that video of Nicholas summoning more patients than anyone, <laughs> uh, you, know, out, you know, short of uh, you know, a Christian saint who has been crucified with a happy smile on his face has, has managed to muster, and you see the behavior of those students that was borderline physically threatening at points, and totally intolerable from an academic point of view. It's just, it's patently obvious to me what should have happened there, that some of those kids should have been expelled from Yale. It was completely beyond the pale what they were up to there. And what actually happened is they got awards for activism. They were literally given awards Right, some of them. I don't know how many got awards, but some some of the principal people in that video got singled out for their their heroic activism, which was antithetical to anything a sane university needs to be committed to, um, in terms of a dispassionate search for truth. So I, I floated that example to these captains of industry, and I said, "At what point do your companies just hold the line and say, if you feel that way, go work somewhere else?" And everyone in the room agreed that that was not going to happen, that there was no way that was going to happen. Just because of the backlash, you mean? Yeah, that it's gone too far, it's too scary, there's too much money to lose. It was a complete, non- it went over like a lead balloon. It was a complete non-starter. I, and I, I kept pushing it. I said, listen, the people in this room literally know everybody. You could have a star chamber meeting where everyone agreed to be on the same page here so that the mutineers from Google couldn't just jump over to Amazon or Facebook or Apple. or You could literally get everyone to agree to just wake up simultaneously. And they said, there's no way it's going to happen. It's over. It, it was an incredibly bleak picture coming from people who either are at the top or were at the top of some of the biggest businesses in tech and media. Right. And w- which suggested to me that this is, you know, the, the situation is worse than I thought, not better. I mean, I, I wouldn't want 
I've saw the video. It was terrible, but I wouldn't want the kids expelled. Why can't it be a middle way where you don't expel them, but you just explain at a certain point, you need to explain like, you know, you guys don't make the rules. Something similar happened with Simon and Schuster where, you know, Mike Pence's book employees wanted to cancel it. And the, uh, the higher ups were like, you know, no, we're not canceling it. Obviously that's another case where a lot of money was involved. So it wasn't like doing it out of their, um, out of the good of their liberal hearts. But, but I mean, that's, that's a depressing story. I just think it, it doesn't seem like the places that have just said, you know, sorry, we disagree with you on this, have suffered as a result. I mean, there's another dumb blow up involving Trader Joe or some blogger or Twitter or tried to say their brand yeah. names were offensive and Twitter just, Trader Joe's just said, said no. Why, why can't more people just say no? That's the one example. I mean, that and Basecamp are the yep. examples of companies standing. I, I don't think Trader Joe's suffered any I, I don't I don't actually know, but I hadn't I haven't heard that they suffered much of anything as a consequence. But Basecamp lost you know whatever thirty percent of its employees, and I think the picture of something like that happening at Facebook or Apple or anywhere else is too terrifying. But that that only presumes that they would have somewhere they could go. I just think that at a certain point institutions have to present a united front here. I mean the problem is, is that if you flipped it, if you flipped the to take the, the variable of race here, it is reverse racism. What, and it's creating which, a completely which case, hostile which case work are you, environment. You mean like the Yale thing? No, the Yale thing was deranged around this, this issue of Halloween costumes. And, but I mean, the, the thing that is causing so much chaos in most of these instances in these corporations, obviously the trans issue comes up again and again, but it, it's much more common that the issue is born of concerns about racial inequality, which you know, obviously are, are understandable and uh, need to be addressed in some way throughout our society. But there's just a continuous allegation of racism where the allegation is not only unwarranted, it's obviously unwarranted, right? Like all the participants actually know that it's unwarranted. I mean, take the case of, I mean, there are so many cases here, but the, the one that comes to mind here is what happened at Netflix with the um, the head of communications, uh, Jonathan Friedland, who got fired. You know, he for using the N word in a context that was not a use of the N word as a slur. It was the use of the N word to tell people just you know what a concern it was that they get their messaging correct. I mean, for those who don't remember this episode, briefly, what happened is that, you know, Tom Segura, the comic, released a comedy special on Netflix where he used the word retard over and over again and they got a ton of blowback and so Jonathan Friedland who was head of communications in a closed door meeting at the company said listen this is this is a huge deal it, it turns out that using this word is like using the n word for the black community but he didn't say n word he used the word and for that use of the magic syllables in a context where he's expressing his own, you know, very liberal opinion that they have to be even more scrupulous about the use of the word retard, he wound up getting fired. But it was in a, a context where literally no one thought that he was actually a racist, right? This was right. not a case where there was a, that his use of the word suggested to so many people that he really is a, a closeted racist. No, he had simply uttered the word Voldemort. And it was the taboo is so deep that there was no digging out. <laughs> so there's a couple different things. There, there was another case 
similar at the New York Times involving Donald McNeil Jr. that right. I I found similarly infuriating. And you had you had you know 150 Times staffers signing a letter demanding he be reinvestigated. I I do think there's maybe a difference between cases like that where you know basically what what people are trying to do there is establish what would be a new linguistic rule, which is that mentioning the term is the same as using it in a derogatory way or close to it, which I find morally and linguistically crazy. And I but. But the, there are other cases where I think there's sort of this black box effect going on, right? If you're, if you're a 25-year-old staffer and you feel overworked and you think the CEO makes way more money than he should and other people are being promoted, I think I might disagree with you, Sam, that, that, that they know there's no racism going on because a lot of industries are cutthroat and it isn't always clear who you know, was helped up the ladder and why. And people do have dads who know other people's dads and give them unpaid. There is a lot of, of generalized unfairness in a lot of workplaces. So I think at a time when racism is very salient, people might pick that as an explanation, you know, even if logically there's not always such strong evidence that's the case. Well, I mean, on, on the contrary, there's the opposite evidence that is obviously the case. I mean, do, do you actually think that there are many or even any good places to work or good places to get an education, right? I mean, take the top 10% companies and the top 10% of academic institutions in our society now. Do you think that a well-qualified black candidate is at a disadvantage applying to those schools or companies at this point? No, I... I can't honestly say they are, no. I mean, I think if, if anything, the opposite, probably. I would say the opposite. I, I would bet it all on the opposite. Yeah. That it's and not just slightly advantaged, right? Like m massively advantaged. And I, I don't think that started two weeks ago. Now, the question is, when did it start and whether that's a good thing? I mean, affirmative action is, strikes me as a, a genuinely difficult ethical puzzle to solve. I mean, I mean, I think I probably would say that at one point it was absolutely necessary and good, and now it's probably a net negative. I mean, certainly in some contexts and maybe all contexts. I'm not sure. I mean, that's, I'm open to debate on that, and, and that would be a, a fascinating conversation to have with people who had strong opinions on it. I don't, I don't actually know what I think, but I know that this is a lie to think that the reasons why, you know, our nation's hospitals aren't full of black neurosurgeons and cardiologists is because there's a, a racist attitude selecting against black doctors. And so it would be in tech or anywhere else. It's just, there's no way that's true. Right, given the, the fact that inequality for the last 50 years along racial lines in our society has grown just increasingly salient and intolerable and galling to anyone who, who is anywhere near the left side of the political spectrum, which, you know, where all of these places are, it's just that there's way too much social interest and, and for, you know, obviously good reasons and social pressure for good and bad reasons, pushing in this direction. So it's just a lie. And it's a, it's a sanity-straining lie because you go into these places and you, you, these activists go into these places and just allege racism where 
it's just not true. Well, so I've been sort of in the room helping to hire from media organizations. And I think where it gets complicated is, I agree with you, the idea, setting aside the possibility of, of implicit bias, which, which could be real, even though I don't think we have a good test to measure for it, major, major media outlets are, if anything, like you said, it's the opposite. They're not, they're not trying to hire white people. In fact, they're trying very hard to diversify. Where that runs into problems is a, a, there are a huge number of kids from backgrounds like mine, from privileged backgrounds, who had a lot of opportunities to get the education they needed and to do all the unpaid internships they needed for the first, you know, 23, 24 years of my life, which is where a lot of my training took place to, to hopefully be good at what I do. I, I never had financial pressure. I didn't have to, to work. I didn't have to balance school. I mean, there, there is this thing called the privilege or advantage, even if people throw mm. the words around in, in silly ways. And for various reasons, you get a situation where there's probably 10 or 15 times as many kids who look like me applying for these jobs and qualified for them as, as people from other groups. And part, I do think part of that is, is, you know, you could call it structural racism. I know people throw around that term in silly ways too, but you just, you can't deny that the Newton, Massachusetts of the world produce huge numbers of kids who are well qualified for these positions and that that isn't, I don't think in any moral sense, I, I earned that. I, I really think I was propelled along by forces I had nothing to do with. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I totally agree there. I mean, this, this comes down to the, the overwhelming influence of luck across the board, but yeah. the luck cuts deeper. It arrives at, at, at every level, right? So the, the level that people acknowledge distinctions in, in luck that they find politically unacceptable. Is it the level of nepotism and who your parents were and the, right. the accidents of, you know, just kind of the, the resources that you got through no effort of your own, and then the way in which that interacts with race, right? So that, you know, white people disproportionately have that, black people disproportionately don't in our society. But the luck cuts deeper than that. I mean, the luck cuts to Genetics. It cuts to you know whether you're intelligent in the first place, whether you have you know the grit or the conscientiousness to um, prioritize anything worth doing and then to do those things. It's all luck at that level, and you know we should want to correct for the the worst disparities here, obviously. But the question is how to do that, and and the opinion of much of the left at the moment is that the way to do that is to tear down the meritocracy to the studs and deny that, on one level, to deny that there are differences between people that matter, right? So, like, you know, one thing that's in the news now is that the move to get rid of the SAT, right, which is it's actually happening. I think the University of California just announced that they, they won't be um, accepting SAT scores going forward, and it, other people want to get rid of gifted programs, right? And, and the, the reason to get rid of these things is because they reveal certain inequalities. I mean, different groups perform differently on the SAT, and the percentages of students who wind up in gifted programs don't perfectly mirror the percentages of, of racial subgroups in our society. and rather than figure out what to do to lift all boats academically, uh, insofar as that's possible, people just want to cease to have 
any information about inv- individual differences because it reflects badly on groups, and they want to cease to differentially help people at different levels of academic promise because it demands that we acknowledge different levels of academic promise, which again reflects badly on groups. And also, this whole thing is deeply inconvenient from a um, you know an identity politics point of view because. It does introduce a zero-sum contest between, in this case, the, the black community and the Asian community. All of this translates into systematically disadvantaging Asian students. When you cut gifted programs, when you, when you say you're no, no longer going to look at the SAT, when you're going to make sure that uh, the student body at Harvard has a, a certain r- representation of various subgroups based on affirmative action, what you really are doing is disproportionately screwing over Asian students who are at the top of the heap academically for whatever reason. And then on top of that, you, you need to pretend that that's, that's not happening or lie about it. That's where the culture seems to be at the moment, at least in education. Yeah, it, it's, watching this unfold has been really depressing. And there's an element in which this sort of like the duality that you have white people and then you have people of color. And those are the two categories. Just, it breaks down completely. I mean, I'm, I'm not that familiar with the fights in New York, but you know, we have big fights over exam schools where you basically, you take an exam to get in and white people are, are underrepresented relative to the popu- their population a lot of time. Asians are overrepresented mm-hmm. and blacks and Latinos are underrepresented. And to, to extract from that, that the, the root problem here is just white supremacy. I, I think the sort of, the hyper-racialization of everything that, that has often been accompanied by like a complete lack of attendance to class issues, although they get complicated in New York too because all the Asian families are from uh, low-income, uh, they're low-income immigrants. But I, I just think it's been disastrous, this idea that everything is, is white people versus everything else. I mean, because obviously the story I was telling just now about people from towns like mine disproportionately being, being good candidates for these slots, we're not competing with like poor white people in, in Appalachia. I mean, if you don't talk mm-hmm. about class, you're, you're missing the point a lot of the time here. Actually, one irony of this selecting against Asians uh, here, you know, by knocking down the SAT or gifted programs, is that it actually advantages whites, right? I mean, I think the net result, it's either net zero or net positive for whites when you select against Asians. Uh, which is sort of an unintended byproduct of this policy. But, um, I mean, why, why doesn't class capture more or less everything we care about here? What if you did a race-blind, class-focused correction? You would disproportionately help members of the black community and the Hispanic community if you focused only on class. And you would also help a lot of poor people in every group. Do you know an argument against that? The arguments against it are very fuzzy. I mean, there, there's this weird pushback on the left against sort of universalist programs that would definitely help minority groups more because they're more likely to be poor. You know, even just the um, Biden expanded, you know, $300 a month for poor families who have kids, I think, per kid. Uh, which could be a big deal. That's disproportionately going to help black families. And and that's called colorblind uh, in the bad sense of the term. And I, I've never quite understood that argument. I, I think 
you know, there's a subset of people for whom it's beneficial to talk about everything only in terms of race and to sort of leave class out of that. And part of the reason is that I don't think media outlets are getting more diverse class-wise. I think they are getting more racially diverse, which is very important. And there's like, there's been some real wrongdoing in the past in terms of white dominated media. But I think it's like still drawing kids from the same very Tony schools. And I, I think there's a clever way of erasing some important distinctions that might not make you or your organization look good if you make this be only about race. So what else concerns you in this area? I mean, how do you, how do you think we should move forward? If you had power at an institution like the New York Times, <laughs> what would you, um, I mean, what do you think the future of a place like the Times is? I mean, what would you predict for the next 10 years? I think they'll be hurt by the absence of Trump, but I do think they have tremendous resources and they're still able to do a lot of journalism. I, I just wish when it comes to sort of social justice stuff in general, they would pay a little bit more to like the, the average person. In my newsletter, I wrote about a front page story they did maybe a year, year and a half ago about the push to abolish or defund the police. This was based in mostly in Minnesota. Abolishing the police is incredibly unpopular among black people. It's incredibly unpopular among all Americans. They managed to write an entire piece with, I think, nine or 12 bylines and contributors that did not interview one black person who was against this policy that most black people are against. Well, and, but I'm sure there were black writers on, on, those, on the byline, which, which uh, came from these overeducated pedigrees that are giving this activist line that is actually not making contact with the, well, the real communities. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, you know, I don't know the backgrounds of these specific writers, but, but to write about such an important issue as police reform and to pay the most attention to activists who do not often reflect these communities, I mean, I, I found it infuriating Watch it, watching softball coverage of, of that issue when you could literally just walk down the street of a poor neighborhood and ask people what they think about the police and, and they feel conflicted about the police because of course they do. The police aren't there when they need them to call, but they also do act abusively. But none of that adds up to them wanting the police abolished. I mean, most Americans want more police in their neighborhood. So that's the kind of thing where it's like all the, you know, outlets have made some progress, for example, recruiting from, from HBCUs. I think that's important. And I do think more racially diverse newsrooms are important. But are are you really outside your echo chamber? Are you using your resources to actually talk to the people most impacted by this stuff? I keep hitting the same note over and over. I just want outlets to think more about class and education, which are in many ways the most important divides in our country. Yeah, no, th this is something that has concerned me for, for at least a decade. Uh, I mean, I think wealth inequality is the problem that is, that is humming in the background and affecting so many conversations, whether we're aware of it or not. And yeah. yeah, it's even beyond income inequality. It's just, I mean, differences in income are obviously important, but it's the disparities in wealth that are, that are so decisive. And there's clearly a significant correlation with race there. I mean, I think it's, there's something like a tenfold difference in average wealth between you know, the white and black communities. So it's, it's just, there's no question that there is a something to mitigate here with respect to race and economic inequality. But the question is how to go about doing that and whether we need to lie to ourselves about anything 
in order to know that we're on the path to doing that. And I don't think we do. And I think every one of these lies comes at such a terrible cost that I fear we're not only not making progress on the, the issue of race in our society now, but I, I really, it feels like we're regressing. I mean, I think, you know, that the Trump yeah. period felt like a period of regression for obvious reasons, but I, I think we're regressing. The regression is even accelerating now under Biden. It's just, it's, it's just the level of dishonesty here is, is and, and, the, and the idea that you would, in the middle of a pandemic, for instance, for Biden to, you know, roll out his economic plan and to be explicit in targeting it, you know, along lines of race, right? You know, we're going to help, we're going to help restaurants provided that, you know, these restaurants are, are run by people of color, right? Or, you know, or the right groups. I mean, it's like, you know, whether or not that's in fact the way it gets implemented to have described it, you know, as a, anything other than a colorblind way of helping the people most in need when you're talking about pushing out economic aid under, during a pandemic is so divisive. It strikes me as a political own goal that is catastrophic, when you're, especially when you have to think about the half of the country that thinks the election was stolen and, and are still in love with Trump. It's just, I, I don't know how you, you heal the political rifts in our society. I think lines. a lot of the framing is is politically suicidal. And, and you need to be careful here because there is obviously this proud GOP tradition of often unhinged backlash to any talk of racial inequality. So, you know, you, you do need to talk about race. It is an important part of American culture. But, but this idea that we should always frame these issues in that way, you know, something, I forget the precise demographics at the moment, something like 70% of the country is still white. And Millions of I think it's sixty two percent. Sixty two now, okay. And millions of those people face serious problems. There's that whole death of despair, sort of Angus Deaton and Case mm -hmm. thing. There's huge problems out there that are not ameliorated just by being white. And they're I just I just sort of think in the long run, like universalism is our is our only option. I, I do not think we can chop people up into fake racial categories forever, even if along the way we do sometimes need to point out that some groups have suffered in ways others haven't. But I just, the, the essentialization of everything worries me. It's really become the only way people in elite settings talk about these issues. And, and I, you know, even police shootings, which do disproportionately hit certain groups, white people get shot and killed by police too. Why, why would you tell people out there who could be your political allies, this is not an issue for you. This is a quote unquote black issue. I've never understood this. I do think part of the problem is that the much more likely outcome if you're, if you're poor and, and if you're non-white is sort of just casual everyday abuses and, and casual incarceration over very little. I, I just think those are sort of less spectacular events that are but just statistically much more likely and more likely to affect a given person's, you know, chances of employment and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, this is something I spoke about with Glenn Lowry, but it does seem, I believe this is based on, on uh, the reporting of uh, Jill Lepore, but it seems like the, the acute problem with respect to policing in the black community is over-policing of minor offenses and under-policing of major ones. Yeah. You have this which is the worst of all worlds. You've got people being arrested and, and getting dinged by, for, you know, on the basis of laws that shouldn't even exist, you know, non-violent drug offenses or 
you know, or dying uh, while under arrest, like Eric Garner for selling cigarettes on the street. Whereas you have, on the other end of the continuum, murderers walking free right. in these neighborhoods uh, based on, on the fact that the murders are not getting solved. But it's not, it's not a simple picture of too much police attention, which no, is it, the way it, it's getting it, spun. It, it, and for, for competent journalists and researchers, it's right there in the survey data. Not that survey data is everything, but, that, but what you just described is exactly what, what people in these communities have been saying forever, is, is you're, you know, you're going to harass me and maybe throw me in jail because I'm drinking a beer on my front stoop, but I've, I've never seen you get here in time to actually like solve a murder. You know, I'm, I'm right. storytelling a little bit, but that's the basic, that's how it works. Hmm. All right, so to see if we can get us in even more trouble, what, have you been touching the, um, the Middle East at all in your, in your thinking? <laughs> what are your thoughts oh, as, a, as a privileged Jewish man on uh, what's happening in the Middle East? I think if the two of us 30 to 45 minutes, we could resolve this whole conflict. Yeah. We might need Jared Kushner to, as, a, as a third. <laughs> I, think it's, I, th- I think it's horrific. I, um, you know, this might, this might be a worthwhile story to tell. I, I'm running a 5K. I, did, I, I looked out at this. I am Jewish. I have a lot of family members who support Israel a great deal. I would say there I am more skeptical of certain aspects of Israel's See, it's hard to even talk. I mean, this is one of the only things where you're more likely to get in trouble than talking about trans issues. I don't even know how to phrase what I want to say right. I'm, I'm raising a little buddy mm-hmm. money for the UN- UNRWA, the relief organization that will help Palestinian refugees. This goes to mental health resources. I announced this on Twitter. There are a lot of conspiracy theories about UNRWA. I looked into them. A lot of the times they're based on you know, the same uh, quality of care of accusation that I face from people who say I want to kill trans people, so I'm, I'm skeptical of them. But um, you know, I was immediately called a terrorist lover, a Hamas sympathizer hmm. for, for raising money to help traumatize people uh, in Gaza. And I guess for me, what it comes down to is I cannot think of many shittier places in, on the planet to be born or to be forced to grow up and live. And I feel, I feel horrible for them. I really do. I, of course, I obviously feel horrible for Israelis who have rockets whizzing past them, but I do think there's a there is undeniably an asymmetry in who who is being killed. And I, you know, I have been gratified to see that since I was younger, there is a little bit more room for American Jews to at least talk about criticizing Israel, which I, I think is important to do. But um, the discourse on this on, on both sides is, in, is unhinged. I've also, I mean, I have to say, just to piss off everybody, seeing people describe Israel just as like a colonialist enterprise in mm. the same way of like Belgium raping the Congo for its resources, I, I think is also deranged and, and ahistorical. But um, I, it, this whole thing's horrific. And, and it's such a sense of, of helplessness. Like, how could anyone pull them out of this? It's, it's horrible. Was that enough of a, a rant that yeah. didn't say anything yeah, yeah. that just got us both in trouble? Have you ever been to Israel? Yeah, I went twice, one on sort of the science nerd equivalent of birthright. And then in graduate school, I went on a policy workshop where they gave us 10 days to, uh, to solve the conflict. Mm-hmm. This was uh, 2012. And as you know, things quieted down since then. Yeah, yeah, good job. Yeah, this is, I, mean, I basically said everything I had to say on this topic seven years ago in a podcast where I subsequently released the, um, the transcript with helpful. Uh, marginalia to deal with some of the blowback, but it was probably the, the most poorly titled podcast I've ever released. <laughs> the uh, The title was "Why Don't I Criticize Israel?" question mark And people just read the title and thought, "Well, I 
he must not criticize Israel. He's a, <laughs> he's an identitarian asshole. Wait, are you suggesting people responded to something without fully consuming it? Yeah, especially when the very first sentences emphasize just how fully I did criticize Israel, going so far as to say that uh, I don't think it should exist as a Jewish state. But um, I do have a, a, a seemingly paradoxical position on this, which is that I, I think it, given what I think about organized religion, it's just intrinsically obnoxious to have a state organized around a religion. And you can obviously argue that the Jewishness of Israel is not quite the same thing as the the Muslim religious identity of a state like Saudi Arabia, right? It's just that right. it, it's more ethnic than it is doctrinal or, or religious per se. But it's still, it, it, the conflict there is made you know, perfectly indelible and um, unresolvable based on religious differences. I mean, they're not, it's not based on ethnic differences. It's not, it's not based on any other cultural attachment, but the fact that they have, you know, certain subsets of, of the two groups have completely incompatible religious infatuations that are focused on specific holy sites. And but isn't the isn't the easy response to that that you're letting the occupation itself as off the hook that the occupation obviously there are religious differences but the occupation like provides the warmest possible womb for all the Hamas bullshit and and the worst sorts of extremism. Yeah, it's just that the problem is there there are two reasons to to occupy a specific territory. There's the religious reason, which obviously I wouldn't support, and I, I do think you know that the. the 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 religious extremists among the settlers should have no power, and they have all too much power in in the current conflict, right? I mean, this is, yeah. these are religious maniacs who should be who should be ignored, or you know, in in the relevant cases, dragged off the contested lands by their beards. These are not people who should be making policy, but there are, for reasons of self defense and and self preservation, you know, Israel has to be fairly concerned about their borders because they are surrounded by people whose expressed political goals are genocidal, right? I mean, Hamas is a democratically elected government whose charter is explicitly genocidal. When you, when you do the, the, the psychological math on that, it's very easy to see the entire conflict from the Israeli point of view. There, there are people among us who can still remember what it was like to be the the victim of an attempted genocide. And we now have a government that is telling us that that is their goal. And you're telling us that you want us to negotiate with them and not, not be too concerned when they, with their limited technology, they try to kill our civilians, you know, and our non-combatant civilians indiscriminately. There's just no moral equivalence between the two sides on that level. And so, you know, reasoning from the disproportionate number of casualties when the conflict flares up gets you one calculus. Reasoning from the stated aims of the two sides gets you a very different one. And I, I do think the latter does need to have primacy. I mean, I just, I think they're, you know, the, Israel is surrounded on all sides by religious maniacs who are in fact genocidal. And if they had the power, they would wipe them out. I, I don't even think that's debatable. Um, and certainly the parties themselves wouldn't debate it. I mean, they're claiming that's what they would do. 
you know, and, and Hamas is comparatively moderate, right? If you have to think of what the Islamic State is like or was like, it still exists to some degree, but, you know, it's, uh, it's been out of the news. We have to deal with this larger picture. We, we have a, a war of ideas here that ultimately needs to be won or the problem just needs to be contained. And we are very lucky to be live, you know, 364 days a year very far away from this problem. But Israel isn't lucky in that regard. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's very complicated. But any analysis of this problem that doesn't notice the explicitly genocidal intentions of the other party, it's just a non-starter for me. And yes, you can say that, well, not all, pa- not all Palestinians would support the genocidal goals of Hamas. Yeah, I have no doubt that's true, but still, I mean, this, this is the government that is firing rockets and using its own civilians as human shields, uh, which accounts for many of the casualties, you know, if not all of the, the unacceptable casualties on their side, right? So there's something so cynical about the, the, the Palestinian side of this, you know, the Hamas side of this, that um, it's, uh, I, I completely share your feeling of compassion for what it's like to be an unlucky child or adult living your life in the prison camp of Gaza. Uh, and it's easy to see how that could radicalize someone, you know, if given the chance. But it's, um, I don't know, I mean, Israel, it is just simply a fact that Israel, for all of its failings, is held to a, a standard that no other democracy has been held to here. I mean, you just have to imagine how the U.S. would behave in an analogous situation, and we've shown every sign a sign of behaving much worse. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm frankly not sophisticated enough on the policy side to have have strong views. I I just I do think the sort of um, the moral weight and the moral corrosion of the occupation and the siege, and when you you think about millions of people who have lived under situations where they they can't move freely, they can't work. Obviously, Hamas is a horrific organization, but I mean, you couldn't generate a better set of circumstances for, for an organization like that. And um, I don't but, know. I, but but I, the I, thing is, I mean, Israel got out of Gaza, right? I mean, they got out of Gaza and then the, the, the war started, essentially, you know, now seven years ago. So it's just, it, the problem is that there's abundant evidence that every capitulation just flips the switch of Islamic triumphalism. It doesn't actually mollify the other side. It just shrinks the borders and makes it, uh, you know, that much harder to defend their society. I mean, I, I think Israel. I don't know. I don't know what happens with Israel. It just seems completely untenable to me in the end. But if you just take the grievance of the occupation as kind of the ground truth, the only answer is, is Israel shouldn't exist. I mean, it's just there's no, the, the Jews should just move on. They should just move elsewhere because you're, you're actually talking about a significant enough population for whom their mere existence is anathema. You know, it's, it's, it's not like the other side is saying, we're going to live happily with you if we just draw the borders this way. Right, I mean that—that's not the communication. Again, it's that's, there's a reason why it's the the most difficult 
political problem on Earth and has been for as long as we've been alive. Yeah. I, so when when I was there, we did a tour of the Jordan Valley. Um, there, there was a sort of aid worker who I already knew and trusted. I had him take me and some of my classmates on a tour. And this is one story of a million like them. But we just we went to this completely ramshackle Palestinian village. They had pooled the resources to build a one-room schoolhouse. One day, the Israelis show up. They didn't have the right permit, so they bulldozed the schoolhouse just like that. And <laughs> stories like that make me a little bit more skeptical of the idea that one side is just trying to live with the other side. I, I, obviously, I don't think Israel would just sort of murder all the Palestinians if they could or anything like that. I just think there's a little bit more to it than the idea of, um, you know, we just want to live in peace and you guys won't accept peace. But I do, I just, I do think, uh, you know, not to sound like a Marxist or whatever, but a power dynamic that profound where one side really does make all the rules over who can do what just has such a, a warping effect on anything that you can't, it's hard to even imagine how things might go differently if there, if there weren't that asymmetry. Oh, but that's the problem. I mean, I guess that's our difference here. I don't think it's hard to imagine at all, right? I think if the, if you flip the power dynamic, we would see a genocide of the Jews in Israel, no question. And and we we already know what would happen if the Jews could kill all the Palestinians because they can and they don't. There are global pressures against them for if if they wanted to do it, but we just know that that's not what they actually want to do. And given the pain they suffer every time they do kill non-combatants, given how they're poised to become international pariahs every time something like this happens, I mean, they've, they've so catastrophically lost the PR war globally, there is no upside for them to kill Palestinian non-combatants. And uh, the fact that they kill so few comparatively, again, I, I do think that they're held to a different standard. I mean, you know, bulldozing schoolhouses, that's its own case that you know, I don't understand. It probably had something to do with the settlements, which which are um, absolutely idiotic, complicating factor here. Yeah. But um, what is so untenable about the situation is one side is advertising on a daily basis what they would do if they could only do it. And it's purely murderous. It's, it, there's no distinction at all between combatants and non-combatants in their rhetoric. You know, I mean, we know what the Islamic State would have done to us and everyone else if they could have done it. There's no mysteries here, because you're talking about a politics that's based on pure millenarian ideology, right? Which is, this is, this is how the world ends. And, you know, we have, we have our analogs in our culture here. We don't hear from them much of late, but yeah, we have our rapture-ready Christian lunatics who have always told us how they think the world ends. But I don't know. I, I just I don't see any mysteries here, and there's no reason to think that they're bluffing, right? I mean, that's the only, that would be the final fallback position. They're not. They don't really mean what they say they mean. I do think there's Poland, and 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 I'll um I'll give you the last word on this subject mm -hmm. after this because I I just don't follow it closely, but. When we're over there, we did look at polling. I think this is tragically true of both sides. Both, both their versions of the two-state solution, both sides would accept. So, so what worries me is not that you're doing this, but there, some people do this, conflating the average Palestinian who does have just like basic material wants and needs and who tend, probably lives a very circumscribed life as a result of a power they didn't elect. And that's obviously true 
often of people living under Hamas, but, but I'm referring to the occupation, I, I don't think they want to destroy Israel. I do think there's this group of radicals, some of whom unfortunately control Gaza, who do want to destroy Israel. I just don't think that's at the top of the mind of the average Palestinian any more than killing you know, Americans is at the top of the mind of the average Muslim. Do we have time for me to weasel out of this and ask you a question about drugs that I'm actually curious about? Sure. All right. So I read, um, I read Waking Up recently, and it was of interest to me because I, for all I know, you've addressed this elsewhere. If so, just tell me. But I, um, it made me very sad that I think, even though I don't have any mental health diagnoses, I think I'm just like a little bit too fucked up to try like one of these hallucinogens that can, in the right setting, give you sort of a luminous experience that, that you know, there's an emerging body of research that they mm. really can change your life forever. And you, you described them, you had the, the thing at the, I think the pond or the lake in Tibet. Am I mangling that? Yeah, no, N- Nepal. Yeah. Nepal. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, what's your current stance on how I should, I, as of now, I have no plan. And, and mm. my hardest drug experience is like a couple of times I did like a baby dose of shrooms with friends and had two of the most fun nights of my life, but there weren't, I didn't even take enough for there to be like visual distortions. What should the thinking be of the neurotic godless Jews out there for whether they can handle these substances? Yeah, that's, that's a hard um, question to answer. It's, uh, well, well, do you smoke pot? I have, yeah, I do a little bit. I need to mix it with, I've had, this is another probably a mm. bad side, but I've had panic attacks just from pot. Mm. Yeah, no, because that's why I ask. Pot can have, and, and so have I. I mean, I've, I've had bad trips on pot. You know, it's not the most common thing, but it, it's definitely happened. So I think pot should be considered a a hallucinogen or psychedelic. But um, any, have you have you ever done MDMA? I have not. My sense is like if you're going to start take a step up, that's a good one to start with, right? Because there can be like a coming down can be physically bad, but you're not going to have like a bad trip in the traditional sense. Yeah, it seems much less likely. I mean, the, the question there is you, you need to be sure that what you're getting is in fact MDMA and not something something else. So it's, you know, you know where you are and how you acquire these things is the question. But yeah, I mean, it's not, a, it's not truly a psychedelic, but the, the experience there is, can be well worth having. And it doesn't have the same liability. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's not, um, you're not going to have a, any kind of classical bad trip on MDMA. And it, it really can be life-changing if you take it with the intention of discovering a part of your mind you um, didn't normally inhabit. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, at a certain point, th- th- there will be a, a legal, orderly place to do this where it's, you're in the presence of, of a proper guide who's trained and, you know, even someone who could bring you down with the the right dose of um, Ativan or some yeah. benzodiazepine to, um, uh, if you wanted to get off the ride. So there, there's, I think at a, at a certain point, it will get better than just rolling the dice with a, a friend in your living room. But uh, even there, I don't know, it, it's... It's it's hard to advise you. I mean, I think if you're concerned enough about it, then that may be reason enough not to do it. But the truth is, even having many trips under your belt never quite puts you in a different position with respect to the next one. Uh, you know, I've had 
many good and bad trips. I, as you probably know, I stopped for a very long time and then recently had a kind of whopping mushroom trip just before COVID. You know, after having not taken psychedelics for 25 years, you know, based on my concern around, I mean, one, just their non-necessity, because I, I think meditation is, is much more in the center of the bullseye for me in terms of what, you know, what I want to do for my mind. But it was also a, a growing sense that I was kind of playing Russian roulette psychologically with um, LSD or, or um, psilocybin, because I just never knew what I was going to get. And that's, you know, even though my last trip was incredibly positive, in contemplating doing it again, I'm left in the same position of, do I really want to spin the roulette wheel? You know, right. I, 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 it's just obvious to me that I don't know what the experience will be, no matter how prepared I think I am, and no matter how well-intentioned I am, and no matter how, you know, how many safeguards I have in place. And so there's, so something like, you know, real trepidation, if not fear, is appropriate no matter how experienced you are. So I, I guess that that's just my a very long way of saying the presence of that feeling isn't necessarily a sign that you shouldn't do it, because that's more or less what everyone feels, except, I mean, there, you know, there are some people who've never had anything other than positive trips, and they don't know, they don't really have a, an internal sense of what the, the flip side of the mind is like, and, and so they, they have no sense of anxiety going into their next trip. But that gets canceled by the first bad trip. So this is a very long-winded way of me saying I, I don't know what to advise you, but you can interpret your feeling of hesitancy either way and be right. You know, it can be a sign that you shouldn't do it because you shouldn't do it. You're you're very likely to have a, an unpleasant trip and regret it, or you can interpret it as a healthy respect for the profundity on offer and. You couldn't expect to feel any other way approaching such a momentous thing. Yeah, I'm I'm so fascinated by that question of like if I'm just not giving myself, I don't know, enough credit because because what was bad about both my bad experiences on pot was a real sense of of dissociation that I found mm. incredibly unpleasant. And with some of these drugs, you you could it sounds if I read your book correctly, you could find yourself like on a mountaintop for ten thousand years, not knowing exactly who you are. And I feel like I would have trouble coming back from that. But I I guess without the frame of reference of knowing what that actually feels like, I, I, all I'm doing is just sort of forecasting in ways that might be too neurotic or, or not giving myself enough credit. I don't think there's uh, this is something that's worth checking, but I don't think. The literature suggests that people really do get tipped into psychosis based on yeah. drug trips. So the the, the idea of, of having a bad trip and, and not coming back, I'm sure. I'm well, sure I there's... just mean having having like serious mental health problems henceforth as a result of the trip. Like well, still that's being what yourself. I mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Like like having having some permanent negative effect. That is. I, I got to think that's that's happened or seems to have happened somewhere. I mean, the the, the reason why people thought it had happened with some regularity is that the time in life where people start taking drugs 
significantly overlaps with the time in life where the 1% of the population that are going to be uh, schizophrenic, schizophrenic discover yeah. they're in that cohort, right? I mean, that's, that begins to happen in your early to mid to late 20s. So if you're not schizophrenic yet, or you, know, you, you don't have any other significant psychiatric condition, I think the likelihood that you will discover that a bad experience on psychedelics pushed you into one seems very, very low based on you know what I understand from the research. But that said, I, I, I you know I do remember feeling like my worst trips had a significant period of hangover, like you know significant as in weeks and months, not merely days. And uh, so you know I, I don't know what to extrapolate from that, but it's just. It's more just you know forgetting about the the possibility of some permanent negative effect, which I do think that's pretty remote. It's not you know if you knew you were going to have a, a scarcely endurable experience, that would be um, something you'd want to avoid. So it's, on some level, it's an estimation of what are the odds of that happening, and you know I don't know how to tell you to play you know to think about placing that bet. It's uh, hard. I don't know how to extrapolate from a couple of bad experiences on pot because you know I've, I've had those too, and right. uh, and eating pot can do that. You know, I think with greater uh, likelihood than smoking it. But it's a hard call. I think I think MDMA, provided you can actually get it and know know that you've gotten it, so you know whatever you get should be tested. That seems like a um, a safer bet. Which and paradoxically, it's you know physically. I think clearly less healthy than psilocybin or or LSD, which are seem physically totally benign. Yeah, maybe that's that's the place to start. I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad I was able to just use you as my personal uh, yeah, unlicensed yeah. drug counselor. Well, Jesse, we've covered a fair amount of ground, which we I uh, expect will not be canceled for. Thank you for the uh, tour of your mind. I'll remind people you have your recent book, The Quick Fix. Your Substack newsletter. Uh, that's that's called Single Minded, right? Yep, jessysingle.substack.com. Yeah, and uh, your podcast with Katie Herzog, blocked and reported. I enjoy all those things. So um, great to speak with you. Thank you very much for having me on, Tim. 